Hello and welcome to the Sonic Summit Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can also check us out on Google, Apple, Spotify, basically wherever you listen to podcasts. That is the Sonic Cinema Podcast. Please rate and review us where you can. You can also check me out at patreon.com backslash sonic cinema. And uh, you can uh, also check out my music at Bandcamp if you're interested in my original music. So we are recording, th- we are actually recording this on the day of the Academy Awards, but we are looking ahead to the baseball season, which will be starting n- in the uh, coming week or so. And joining me to talk about a few baseball movies is a Film critic uh, Daniel Solzman, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Uh, so this is your first time on the podcast, and uh, as such, I wanted to uh, go ahead and um, get a little bit of uh, background about what drew you to uh, writing about movies, talking about movies, just having a love for movies in general. Well, I mean, I fell in love with movies uh dating back to uh, Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park in 1993. I mean, just the awe and splendor of looking at dinosaurs on the uh, screen. I mean, aside from the part where they're trying to eat you and kill you. (laughs) And uh, that's that's certainly the, I mean, that's certainly the adventure. I know for, for me watching, I mean, I, by that point, I'd, I'd been a huge fan of, uh, Spielberg's of his work in the 70s and 80s and uh, Jurassic but Jurassic Park really kind of rekindled that for me and I, I definitely understand getting that jolt of those movies and actually Danielle and I are uh, talking about doing a podcast doing an episode later on the this year on the Jurassic Park franchise and uh, Jurassic World Dominion comes in um so what was it about, uh, was, was that just, was it basically as simple as just that experience of Jurassic Park that made you want to write about mu- movies, or was it, was it anything else? I mean, it's a multi-part answer. I mean, between Jurassic Park in 93 and the Star Wars special editions in 97, that was really what cemented the decision to eventually go into filmmaking. Of course, a lot of things happened uh, <laughs> between now and then. Uh, 2000 had this uh, foray into uh, American politics. And then 2003, during Welcome Week on campus, lo and behold, Second City uh, Tour Co. performs and the improv bug bites. And then it's really not until 2007, after graduating uh, college, uh, between Knocked Up and uh, going on Birthright Israel that everything came back to uh, pretty much going into uh, filmmaking slash uh, comedy. Okay. But what started me with writing about film is summer of 2013. I mean, I'd previously been writing a uh, political blog that I later turned into an outlet for book reviews, but every now and then I would, of course write about movies, including uh, what I felt were the best films of the year and where I would issue my awards, which have since become known as the Salsi Awards. And so we're vacationing in Tampa for uh, Ray's uh, Red Sox game. And 
I'm, I was writing for uh, fan-sided uh, outlets for the St. Louis Cardinals and Kentucky Wildcats at the time. The higher-ups posted in the Google group about restarting their film site and looking for writers, and the rest is history. Okay. Uh, where can people... We'll, we'll go ahead and get an early plug-out for your work. Where can people find your work online? Salsy at the movies, S-O-L-Z-Y, themovies.com. And people can find me on uh, Twitter at Danielle SATM. And uh, my Facebook page is also Salsy at the Movies. Okay. And uh, you you mentioned uh, being in Tampa for a Tampa Bay Rays game. That leads us into the discussion of the day, which is baseball movies. And um, was there was there a reason that baseball more than any other sports uh kind of caught your attention or is it is it just as matter of uh just growing up as a fan of the sport i mean i grew up in louisville kentucky we had the st louis affiliate for so many years before they left us from memphis and we had the brewers for two seasons and then it's been the reds ever since uh back home in louisville but the legion stuck I mean, mm-hmm. I can every time Field of Dreams is on TV, like I will stop what I'm doing and I will not stop watching until it ends. And if it on course, I will continue watching <laughs> until either it get back, gets back to where I uh, started mm-hmm. or maybe I end up watching it in its entirety again. And I own the movie. Yeah. And uh, we'll, we'll certainly get into Field of Dreams because that was one of the uh, movies that you put out there when I asked you about your favorite um, baseball movies, and uh, this this was one that I was definitely curious to watch because I will admit uh, this this was my first time seeing it in in its entirety and getting ready for this podcast. So it was it was definitely a good experience to be able to finally watch that. And we'll go ahead and get started in this. Um, when it comes to baseball movies, what is what is the most important thing to you when it comes to how baseball is portrayed in movies? Well, I mean, the most important thing is, do you have Kevin Costner cast in your <laughs> film or not? He's been in three of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking about that because of the fact that he did Bull Durham, then he did Field of Dreams, and they later did For Love of the Game with uh, Sam Raimi. And, uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, for me, I've always been a, I've, I've just been underdog sports genre fan. I mean, that's, it's, I, I've talked elsewhere and other places that that's a little bit of my kryptonite where it's like, if you do an underdog sports story, chances are I will, I will at least get behind your movie to a certain extent because it's really kind of hard to mess that formula up. And, um, you know, one of the things that I think is kind of interesting, at least in, is that we have three movies that we're going to be talking about today where, in a way, they each deal with under, underdogs in sports with regards to sports in their own ways. But, I mean, certainly some are more conventionally about the sport itself and others deal more in social issues or personal issues. And um, what is it about, and we'll go ahead and get started. We'll actually start with uh, the one with 
1989's Field of Dreams, uh, written and directed by Phil Alden Robinson. Uh, and like you said, this one stars Kevin Costner, and that that is certainly a big benefit to any movie about sports, whether it's this, whether it's Bull Durham, whether it's Tin Cup. Uh, I I think he he just has it, he he has an interest in that type of story and those type of characters that is that is really kind of interesting to watch. When did you first see Field of Dreams for the first time? I saw it probably early 90s. I can't remember if that was one that I saw in theaters or not. I mean, I was only, let's see, uh, five years old uh, in late 1989. Mm -hmm. So it was probably one that I was introduced to at some point in the early 90s. Yeah. Um, what is it about? And we'll, we'll get go ahead and get a little bit into the story. This is uh, based on based on a novel and it's about a man who uh, had a fractured relationship with his father but one of the things his father did pass down was an appreciation for baseball and especially the Chicago White Sox in the uh, 19-teens and in particular the team of the uh, White Sox that had Shoeless Joe Jackson and was... Um, had eight members of it banned for uh, tanking, accused of tanking games. And uh, he goes, he buys a cornfield with his uh, wife and his, with his wife and his daughter in tow. And one day he hears a voice in the cornfield that says, if you build it, he will come. And that leads him on this, journey of self-discovery but also a little bit of madness in creating a baseball diamond in the middle of a cornfield and one day shoeless joe jackson is out there the ghost of shoeless joe jackson is out there and it this the story that this movie takes you on is really fascinating to me and i i think it's it gets to I think it gets to this romantic idea of baseball that a lot of us kind of grow up with this idea of the love of the game, America's pastime, and the way it's passed down from uh, parents to uh, children. And I, I think that's one of the things that's so strong about this film. Oh, I mean, for sure. I mean, just dating back to 1996, uh, my family went on family vacations every year. There was always a uh, baseball park involved. <laughs> Sometimes there were a few parks involved. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, we didn't, you know, I was I was from Ohio. So, I mean, I, I went to a couple of Indians games uh, when we, growing up. But really, it wasn't until uh, we moved down to Georgia in the 80s and, uh, started watching uh, the Atlanta Braves, and we went to a bunch of Braves games, especially uh, in the run starting from 1991 to about 1993, 1994, as they were getting better, as they were continuing to go to the uh, World Series and make the playoffs. And um, I know one of my most vivid memories with uh, my dad is being at that Game 7 of the NLCS where Sid Bream slid and to home and it's it's a memory that will never 
forget. It's just one of those things where it's like I can say that I was at that game. I mean, I, I've been to other really good games and other really good sporting events, but nothing's just ever going to come close to it. And I, I think that's part of one of, I think that's one of the things that really has, that's one of those memories that really has stood out to me in following sports because of the fact that it's, it's, it's one of those things I just never expected, you know, you would never have expected that type of situation to play out. And the fact that it did was just so remarkable. And it really, you, you see the passion in the players when, when that happens. And I think in a uh, field of dreams, you have those moments where whether it's just warming up or whether they're playing the game that you see the the players playing on that field, it's you do get a sense that they're they're having something returned to them that was taken from them, and I, I I think that's one of those things that's really great about this. Yeah, I mean, just the story of uh, Moonlight Graham. I mean, here's a guy who what plays in Major League Baseball for maybe one game, mm-hmm. his career comes to an end, and then. Uh, Kevin's character's daughter is choking uh, there in the stands. And this is around that time where Timothy Buzzfeld's like, you have to sell the farm. And then all of a sudden, Moonlight Graham becomes Doc Graham. And uh, next thing you know, uh, Kevin's uh, brother-in-law is finally uh, understanding why the field was built. Mm -hmm. And is like, you cannot sell this farm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, as much as this, I I I think this is this is one of those films that I think is kind of interesting because of the fact that it deals with it deals with the nature of faith in a lot of ways that is in one of the ways that I'm most intrigued by, which is sort of separating the idea of faith from religion and making it to where it's an idea that is palpable that is that can be achieved by anybody, regardless of how religious or not religious you are. The idea that Kevin Costner goes on this, has this absolutely crazy notion come into his head of creating a baseball field in the middle of Iowa, and he has to sort out the reason for himself, but he just feels like he has to do it. There's a purpose for him doing it. And I, I think one of the things that kind of surprised me in watching this for the first time, I, I, it, it showed just how much I, how much my notions of the movie, just based on the scenes that I had seen, was wrong because of the fact that it's like you don't get to up until that very, the very end. There, you still have this idea of. Well, they're still in very big trouble financially speaking, and you don't have this idea of coming up with uh, them selling tickets to show show this farm off, show this amazing idea off, and he just kind of really does have to take on faith to go on this adventure, this journey. Yeah. Um, I, I will say one of the things that uh, I, I did notice in, in this film that I, I do want to bring up is the score by James Horner, which is absolutely wonderful. He's been one of my favorite composers for 
a long time, and he's one of the reasons I wanted to compose music. And I, I will say I was kind of disappointed when I went to add this score to <clears throat> my streaming music services that was only available in like playlists that other fans have chosen as opposed to um, as opposed to being available just in its original forms. So that, that kind of disappoints me, but one of the things that really and this is relative I mean, he was, I guess, 10 years and about 10 years into his career at this time. But one of the things that I think this illustrates in Horner is this ability for him to uh, to really capture something emotionally, but also doing something that's very mysterious, very haunting as well in his use of different different instruments, different uh, sounds to to really to really get to the emotions of the film. Yeah. This is where I feel guilty for not watching the movie on Friday or Saturday. I, mean, I think I ended up doing my rewatch around the time of the Field of Dreams game, if not beforehand. Because mm. no, I had it on, I had the two disc, uh, was it DVD or Blu-ray that I got back in the day at uh, Best Buy? Mm-hmm. Or Circuit City, one of those stores, and then during the pandemic, I made the upgrade to 4K. Yeah. So it's been a few years since I like really watched the film, watched the bonus features. But I mean, it's one of those where if MLB Network is playing it, I am watching it. Yeah. Well, and it's it's also one of those movies where it's like I can understand now that I've seen it that once you've seen it, like there are going to be scenes that stand out. The the scene with where he's back in 1972 talking to uh, Doc Graham and uh, getting the idea of him, his first scenes with Terrence Mann, the James Earl Jones character, and uh, the journey that they go on. And, you know, it's like I had so many different, you know, I again, that's one of those things where I, based on what I knew of the movie, I just did not have the right perceptions of, what that movie was and now that I've seen it it's like oh this is so much richer than I expected it to be and it really does I get the appeal of this to to people when it comes to what it gets to about baseball and what it gets to in terms of the idea of relationships that we might have with our parents and uh our or children such as it may be that are complicated and you know and sometimes you need that one thing I know for me it was really more scouts with my dad that really brought us together with my mom it was more movies that brought us together you know and this is this is one of those things where it's like I I get that I I get that you what this is getting at when it comes to you know, even even regardless of something, there's there can always be something that kind of brings you a bit closer with your parents sometimes. Yeah, like I think back to a few weeks ago when I first watched uh, The Adam Project on Netflix, late in the film where they're playing uh, catch with, e- with each other. Like I'm flashing back to the end of Field of Dreams. Yeah. I, you know, and it's like this is, you know, it, it, it's interesting to see all of the different names in here, like Timothy Busfield, you mentioned, Ray Liotta, Shoeless Joe Jackson, 
Burt Lancaster's Doc Green, Graham, uh, James Earl Jones as Terrence Mann, Frank Wally as young Doc Graham. Uh, it's you know it's it's one of those things where you you watch a movie like this, you see the ensemble, and it's it's always it's always cool to see like actors that you've come to know over the years for different things in in a movie that you're not as familiar with and see them in something see see how different they are in that particular yeah and Costner's not the only one who's been in other baseball films I mean you have James Earl Jones uh, in The Sandlot which is another classic mm-hmm. Timothy Buzzfield is in uh, Little Big League which is one of those that I'll watch whenever it's on uh, MLB Network when I or check it out on the DVR when I feel like it. Mm-hmm. Um, what what is probably the the scene in particular in this one that uh, stands out to you the most as far as like maybe having the most impact? For me, I mean, I'm not sure if I could pinpoint a scene in particular. But, I mean, Terrence Mann's monologue is one of the greatest monologues in movie history. Yeah, I, I think, you know, and I, I think the one that right now kind of stands out most is is Lancaster talking about, you know, his, his you know, about his time in baseball and uh, just remembering back to that. I, I think that's something that immediately stuck out to me as memorable and then and then of course there's the scene at the end with uh kevin costner and his father and it's Uh, it's just really you know you you know as soon as as, you know because of the language of film the nature of how how filmmakers uh stage things you basically know as soon as that uh as as soon as the catcher's mask comes up that's like oh that's that's obviously kevin costner's father and uh then but that entire that entire uh final scene with them is just really really beautiful and the way that he uh the way he makes that uh the the way that he makes that palatable scene for uh his family and uh as well as his father and and it's just really lovely um so we will go ahead now and go to 2013's 42, which is uh, from writer-director Brian Helgeland, and it talks, it tells the story of Jackie Robinson in his as he is breaking into the major leagues uh, and the Brooklyn Dodgers as a result of the actions of Dodgers general manager Branch Rickey, played by Harrison Ford. Um, I, I think the thing that really... I hadn't seen this movie since uh, it since theaters, and re-watching this, one of the things that really struck me was the fact that this movie is as much... In a way, this movie is almost as much about Ricky as it is about uh, Jackie Robinson. And um, you really... It's, it's one of those things where it... In a way, you... You kind of kind of wonder what on the one hand you wonder well does that take too much of the focus away from Robinson or but you really you can't really 
it almost feels like you can't have one story without the other in this case. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you definitely cannot tell Jackie's story without telling the part of uh, Branch Rickey's story where he wants to integrate baseball. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, is, what are your general thoughts on 42 as a movie? I mean, I, I personally think it's... I, I think it's a it's a fine biopic. It it feels it goes into a lot of the typical tropes of biopics. But I mean, the, I will say the performances by Chadwick Boseman and Harrison Ford really do elevate this beyond just being a biopic. I think. Yeah, I mean, if it were up to me, they both would have had Oscar nominations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking about that because I I do and I have always really liked Harrison Ford in this. It's one of my I, I think it is one of my favorite performances of his. Um, I mean, you know, you, you can look at, listen to the voice and stuff and some of the mannerisms and think, oh, maybe he's overdoing it, but really he isn't because of the fact that it, it does come off as very genuine as as part of who the character is. And uh, yeah, he I was, I was thinking about the nominee, who the nominees were, that year, and yeah, he he definitely would have been my top five for for uh, this one. Bozeman, this was this was one of those roles that um, started him on the path to really to to the stardom he he achieved with Black Panther. I mean, he was in uh, the James Brown film. Mm-hmm. This one, I mean, and I even enjoyed his work in uh, Draft Day. Yeah. A, another sports movie with Kevin Costner, actually. Um, and I can't believe I, I kind of forgot he, that one. Kevin Costner cannot escape these, the genre. <laughs> no. And uh, yeah, I, I I can't believe I forgot that one because it has the uh, Cleveland Browns, but that might be because I have issues with the Browns right now. But um, it's, it's uh, and yeah, Chadwick Boseman's terrific in that one, too. Uh, I... I'm, I think it's really, I, I wonder how much, I almost wonder if there was any fighting that Helgeland had to do to make the racism as pronounced as he was, because we do get quite a few instances of the N-word being used, as well as plenty of other racial slurs in this movie towards Jackie Robinson. And but it's a PG thirteen movie, and I, I, I think it one of the things that did strike strike me when I first saw it, and even now is that he was able to make it, you know, as as harsh as he was in terms of the racism within the confines of a PG thirteen rating. I was I was really kind of impressed by that. Yeah, I mean. I mean, the one thing is, like, I mean, I hate racism. Yeah. And I will not use that word. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I mean, if you're making a period pick about this uh, his time of life, I mean, if you're making a period pick, I mean, you have to try and stay true to uh, what that era. Yeah. Like, it's ugly to watch when it's happening, but, I mean, if you don't stay true to the era, you were it would not have that same, uh, I mean, I'm not sure if power is the right word, but it would definitely would not feel authentic. No, no, it wouldn't. Um, and uh, 
you know, it's, you know, we do have, I, I will say it's like, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, I know Spike Lee wanted to tell Jackie Robinson's story a lot or for a while. And then I think it went to, I think Redford was attached at one point before Helglin finally brought it to the screen. And, it's, and, you know, I mean, obviously it would have been a very different movie under Spike Lee, but it's like, you can't help but, you know, it's, it's interesting to wonder, you know, what this movie might have been like with Spike Lee, whether it would have been, whether it would have gone harsher, whether, whether we would have gotten a more, you know, it would have been interesting to see how this film would have taken, but at the same time, I do think, I, I think Helglin does a very good job. It's a, it's a it's a smart script he and i think the fact that he focuses so much on ricky and uh and jackie equally i i think is i think is the main thing that really uh helps this film immensely because of the fact that it is their journey as much as as it is anybody's and you have to have those moments where between those two where they're kind of holding their respective feet to the fire during this. Yeah. And they're mainly focusing on those first uh, few months in uh, Jackie's uh, career. I mean, I'm sure there's no shortage of stories that can be told about the rest of his career. And oh, even yeah. after his career, and I know there's been documentaries that have been made because I see the very good <laughs> MLB TV all the time or MLB network. Yeah. Um, we, I, I would be remiss though if I, if I also didn't mention, uh, Alan Tudyk in this movie as, uh, Ben Chapman, because it's, and it's funny because as somebody who's been familiar with Tudyk through like Firefly and through some of his more enjoyable performances and characters, it's like, this is, this is quite a shock to hear, to hear him in, as this character and he, it really is a, it really is a chilling performance, and you see just how much it eats at him that Jackie Robinson is in in the league with him, and you you do really, it it's one of those moments where you get the over racism that was facing that was facing Robinson about as clearly as you could possibly make it. Oh yeah. You know, we also get moments you you do also get moments with uh Stanky's his uh teammate who he stands up to Chapman for on Robinson's behalf. You have Pee Wee Reese in Cincinnati, uh going back to Cincinnati and everything that leads to their moments their moment on the field and uh it's it's you know, overall, this movie—I will say—I probably, I, I probably like this movie more on the second time than I did the first time because of the fact that it's like once you take it as the, as a with a lot of the uh, biopic tropes, and you you let the body of the narrative come through, you really just see how effective it is as a biopic and as this one story and. Uh, I think part of it might have been the part of it might have been the fact that it's like you had the you had the inter 
so much it was so much about Ricky that I didn't necessarily appreciate that on the first viewing as much as I do now. Yeah, I mean, and the Pee Wee Reese moment, like that's one of the like even in baseball history, like that's really the moment where like it changed uh the course of uh baseball. Yeah. Yeah, I would definitely uh yeah, I mean that that's that's definitely the case. I mean you you get the natural postscript of you know what happened to everybody and uh you know it's it's one of those things where it's like this 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 follows a lot of the formulas but it's like you you've got the performances by Bozeman Ford which are both terrific you have and you have essentially a, I I would say a workmanlike direction from Helgeland who you know I I have you know I'm I'm a I'm not high on as a filmmaker, but overall, I think he's he's a good filmmaker overall. Um, and uh, you know, it's it's just the nature of the story. The the story is what carries this, and uh, the way that this story is ultimately told is what carries this. And I, I I'm glad I had a chance. I'm glad I rewatched it for this uh, this 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 episode. It was it was really it was really good to revisit this. I mean, and forty two is one of those that I would have revisited right after Chadwick died, just like draft day. But it's a bit emotional to watch those uh, films like right after you hear the news that he died. Yeah, yeah. I think we. I I think my I think my go to was uh, probably Black Panther, just because of the fact that it was you know it's. It's it's a Marvel movie, and obviously it was the one that um, everybody kind of went to when it comes to uh, Bozeman, and uh, he, you know, and and but I, I, you know, it's like to go to draft day. It's like the moment, the moment that Vontae Mack is drafted. Like you, you see just in that one moment, it's so beautiful the acting that uh, Bozeman does, and the the just pure emotion and joy that you get out of that. He just captures it so perfectly. Um, it's, it's, it, it's just, you know, we, we talked about James Horner's like, I miss, I miss James Horner. So being able to really experience his field of dream score for the first time is, uh, was, was special to me because he's always been one of my favorites and we obviously are not getting any more, New James Horner scores, and then with uh, forty-two, just being able to revisit uh, Bozeman's work is is always going to be a special experience. Whether you're talking about Black Panther or Draft Day or forty-two, and uh, you know it's it's a sh it it is is just tragic beyond words that we we lost him as as he did because it's like you know we will have just gotten dozens of upon dozens of more great performances from him oh yeah i mean i mean like you i not only did i turn to black panther but i ended up watching uh infinity war and endgame for the upteenth time during the <laughs> pandemic <laughs> yeah i i i'll admit it's like my my wife and i did talk about doing to doing a uh doing a marvel uh binge before i think it Spider No Way Home, but we ended up not doing it because we were busy with a whole bunch of other stuff. But that that is that is a rewatch. That those are that 
is a long rewatch that I'm due uh, due to do it some due to watch it sometime, and I'm I'm definitely I will definitely look forward to that. And just just Bozeman in general. I mean, you know, whether we're talking about those, whether we're talking about his 42 Dravite, um, or Defy Bloods, which he was he was terrific in his scenes in that movie. Um, so we will close out though with a lighter take on the sports genre in 1989's Major League, which is um, from David S. Ward, who wrote The Sting, won an Oscar for The Sting. And it basically follows the uh, Cleveland Indians in a, uh, in a rags, in basically your tradition, this is the most overtly traditional underdog sports movie because it takes a bunch of misfits and basically sees them succeed as as champion as winners by the end of the season and uh what just out of curiosity what is it about major league that stands out to you as being being a favor among the uh baseball movies bobby euchre <laughs> he yeah it, and it's funny because as much of a ba- as much of a Cleveland person as I am, around 2016 when the Indians started getting really good again and the Cavs won the championship, I really started to get more into re- remembering, appre- starting to really reappreciate uh, Cleveland sports. I I finally remember it's like, oh yeah, Major League is about the Indians. I completely forgot about that for some reason. Um, so I've seen it a few times since then, and I, I love that it starts with the Randy Newman song uh, about about the the Cuyahoga River, and uh, I you know it, it's 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 funny because of the fact that as somebody who is who who has the memories of uh, Cleveland sports, it's it's funny to see this movie and. Uh, have an owner of a Cleveland sports team who not only considers moving the team, but also is very cheap on payroll. Uh, because the Guardians, as they're now known, is dealing with a payroll issue and have for a few years. And then the Browns, a few years after this movie came out, had their owner move the team to Baltimore. And uh, it's it's funny to, sort of, to see almost how accidentally prescient uh, Ward was in um in those two things. This is this is just a movie that's just fun. It it just shows you you get all of these different characters like Willie Mays Hayes, Ricky Vaughn, uh, Jake Taylor, and it's it's just such it's 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 very much that traditional rags to riches story, and uh, it's it's. You you mentioned Bob Euchre's the announcer, and it, indeed, I mean it, it is one of the it's one of the more icon it's one of the iconic, if not the iconic, announcer uh, characters in movie history. And uh, I you know I this is this is one that definitely is always kind of entertaining for me to watch. Um, is it basically just because of Bob Uecker, or is there, is there something about the comedy in this? Because the comedy, I will say, I, I'm pleasantly surprised that there's there's certainly some cringeworthy comedy in this film still. I 
now looking at now, but I mean, so much of it still is kind of good natured. And I, I think that's, there's good natured ribbing more than just, Oh, we're going to be kind of, you know, we're, we're, you know, it doesn't quite date as poorly as some eighties comedies do. I mean, and this is another one of those films that I rewatched around the time of the 30th anniversary and haven't really rewatched it since. Mm-hmm. But I mean, a lot of that's because I keep going back to the same content during the pandemic, like your yeah. Home Alones, your Marvel movies, <laughs> your Star Wars, your Jurassic Parks. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and and I mean, I I certainly understand the the need for the the need for uh, to go back to like comfort movies and comfort, and you know, and that's one of the things I think I like about uh, underdog movies and and about sports movies in general. I think that might be one of the reasons I gravitate toward them is because of the fact that it's like it the these movies. Uh, they ultimately give you hope, or are intended to give you hope, and they're intended to make you feel like, no matter how how bad something gets, like things can get better. You know, whether it will take time, and you know, certainly it will take time. But you know, if you if you make, well, no, that's I I think you know. And, and that's one of the reasons why I, I think there, there's an interesting connection beyond just being about baseball in this is that they're also, they're basically all about movies who, they're all about characters who are trying to make things better for other characters, whether it's their teammates or whether it's society or whether it's, whether it's these icons and sports in the case of field of dreams or their own thought or or their own their own healing process when it comes to their family and i i think that's 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 one of the things i just love about sports movies and it is why i go back to movies sports movies so much is uh because of the fact that it's like it's it's that nature is that idea of um it's the idea of being able to being able to overcome what life throws at us. And I think that's that's something that I I, I certainly resonate in this genre with. Yeah, I mean like Cool Runnings and Miracle, like those are some of my go to films around the Olympics. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, even though Jamaica I mean Jamaica does not win in the end, but the whole world basically rallied around them. Yeah. I mean, just to see that applause as they're walking their sled to the finish line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, it's it's just something that um, it it gives us, you know, it just gives us something to believe in, and that's that's one of the that's one of the things that ultimately sports does. I I think, and I mean, you know, it's I think that's for me that's part of what his you know, that, that's, honestly, that's part of what's made, uh, you know, one in particular choice that the Browns have made recently so disheartening is because of the fact that it feels like, it feels like they're, they're, rather than inspiring, it, it feels like it's just, 
it's it's just about you know it's it's just about succeeding at all costs regardless of what you know it, regardless of what you give up and i think that's that's been my one problem and it's probably why i might just stick to baseball this year and actually just go ahead and just cheer for the Braves this year and not really follow football too much. I was never, I mean, I did sports when I was growing up, but it's like, I, I never was, it was never one of those things that I was going to be as successful for in terms of, uh, in terms of personal accomplishment, but you know, my, my account, my interests lie more crave, uh, crave endeavors. But it's one of those things where it's like I watch a good sports movie and it's it's going to put me in a mood regardless of how good or bad it is. And I mean, I I think that's one of the things I like about all three of these is that it put me in that they all put me in that mood in their own ways. I mean, I played uh, t-ball when I was growing up, but then I was forced into early retirement. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I did T-ball, but I mean, I know I did, I did bowling growing up. I did tennis growing up. I did soccer when I was in Ohio, but yeah, I mean, ultimately I went to, uh, went to band and basically didn't look back, you know, and with, there aren't as many inspirational stories as far as, well, there are, but they're, in, they're inspirational in their own ways. Uh, as far as about musicians is there are, uh, sports stories yeah and uh so what are what are some of we we talked about three in particular but what are some of your other baseball movies that you really really appreciate and love i mean the sandlot little big league i'll uh, turn to for the nostalgia even though that storyline is not realistic. I mean, even Rookie of the Year. I mean, I know Thomas Ian Nicholas. I've met him several times at Comic Cons. But that's another one that, like, I dislike the Cubs with the passion, but I mean, that's one of those films that, I mean, I'll watch for the fantasy of it all. Mm-hmm. Even yeah. though I dislike the team at the center. I mean, Angels in the Outfield, I did a rewatch a few weeks ago. I mean, mm-hmm. just because I was in the mood for a baseball movie and it was see, was that on Disney Plus or YouTube TV? It was one of the two. But I mean, just, just turning to all these classics just for comfort or because I wasn't really in the mood for watching one of these new releases that I knew was going to lose my uh, focus. Yeah. No, I mean, and that's I, I think that's one of the uh, that that is certainly one of the values of rewatching it. I think that's one of the things that I you know, it's like, especially writing about movies as frequently as we do, especially, you know, the obli- the the pressures, obviously, to watch the newer ones and talk about those. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, there is so much value in rewatching. And one of the things that I know, uh, following you, one of the things I appreciate is when you go into watching those older movies whether it's for an anniversary whether it's just for the sake of watching and writing about it and i i think that's one of the things that you know i mean that i know that's one of the things i've tried to do over the years is like when i started to really watch rewatch and re write about older movies part of the reason was because there were some of them were movies that i wanted to write about for a while 
but it also gets you back in touch with why those movies were special to you in the first place or you know why they don't ne- you don't necessarily feel the same way about them now yeah like i mean it's interesting watching some of these films that i grew up with for an anniversary piece and realizing that yeah i don't feel the same way that i did when i first watched it or holy crap i did not appreciate that part of the film when i was growing up Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, after this week, I mean, I watched In Search of Tomorrow, which is this five hour documentary on 80s sci fi cinema. And like, I've been seeing the same clip of Maccabee for a number of <laughs> years. And so that was featured in, like, uh, where is this streaming that I finally uh, bit the bullet and watched it uh, the other night? Yeah. And then I decided to watch uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids again. And I mean, the production design that goes into a film like that. Mm hmm. I mean, it's just amazing. Yeah. No, it is. And, um, it, you know, it, especially because, I mean, that's that's the era where I was I was young, too. Like, I was in my early, you know, I was, I was around 10 or so, 10, 11, when Mac and Me came out. And it's like re-watching some of those movies. I mean, you know, to, I, I, I recently uh, talked about uh, Don Bluth movies on uh, the Binge Movies podcast. And uh, it's funny because three of those movies I had not actually seen because by that point I kind of... Which three? Out, uh, Land Before Time, uh, All Dogs Go to Heaven, and Rock-A-Doodle. I had kind of grown out of watching family movies by that point. I was more interested in watching what my parents wanted to watch, what my parents were watching at that time. And... Um, you know, going back, but also revisiting American Tale, revisiting uh, Secret of Nim for those for that discussion, it really, you know, I very much had a different reaction to those movies when I was growing up. I enjoyed those movies very much so, but I look at them now and you see the different layers of what Don Bluth is doing in those. You see the techniques of what Don Bluth is doing in those and you see even something that like the land before time which is arguably almost better known for gifs and the fact there are dozens of sequels to it than the movie itself you look at that movie and you you see there's okay so this is not just it's not just a silly dinosaur movie for kids it has real ideas about family about loss and about uh moving past your grief to survive and i i think that is that is it's it's one of those things that i really appreciate about rewatches and something that i really love about rewatches and you know i i try to re- rewatch as much as i can and, you know, I, I think sometimes being able to do that for just the sake of rewatching it, just for the sake of having that experience, it really does kind of open you up to when you have that experience as rewatching, it makes it easier if you have no, if you don't feel any pressure to, in the rewatch, I think it opens you up to really seeing things in the movies that you didn't before. Yeah. I mean, Lamb Before Time, I mean, that's the first film I remember seeing in theaters. 
Yeah. So South by 2019, I get to interview Frank Marshall for the gift, the journey of Johnny Cash. And after the interview wrapped, I mean, I thanked him for my uh, childhood because he played a role in so mm -hmm. many of those uh, Spielberg films. Yeah. Um, we, we didn't really talk about it at the beginning, but, and you mentioned Jurassic Park. What are some of, who are some of those, uh, some of those filmmakers that you might appreciate and some of those films that you kind of appreciate more often than, more than others? <sighs> I mean, Spielberg, obviously. I wasn't that big of a horror fan uh, growing up and I'm still not that big of a horror fan, but I mean, I'm trying to watch more and more of these uh, Hitchcock films. Mm -hmm. I know there's another 4K collection coming out in May yeah. that I hope that I would like to add on to my current uh, collection, which includes, let's see, the British International Pictures collection from, I think that was Kino, Blackmail, Murder from Kino, Warner Archive put out a four-film collection, Stage Fright, Paramount uh, presents To Catch a Thief, and then North by Northwest is one of those that I could watch repeatedly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, North by Northwest is uh, was is my mom's favorite movie, and you know it's it was I I didn't you know watching with her I watched uh, was introduced to Arsenic and Old Lace as as a kid, and uh, you know I that's oh, that's a I, classic. Oh, I I love that movie, and I I I still love watching that movie, and uh, it's it's you know that's that's one that I really am. It's one of those reasons I'm really grateful to her for the the fact that she introduced me to a lot of stuff like that, like Mel Brooks's movies, like at a young age, because of the fact that it's like it really helped me grow into somebody who wasn't just interested in one specific thing about film. And I mean, even though at a certain point my taste my my interest in films surpassed hers in terms of being interested in foreign films and documentaries on a more regular basis, on a more plentiful basis, it's it's something that I will always be grateful uh, to her for uh, instilling in me that the idea that there are different movies that could that that I could like beyond just you know what was what was out in theaters, and uh, I I think that's. Yeah, being able to uh, experience stuff like that, um, whether you've seen it for the first time or the twentieth time, it's it's always it's always remarkable. Yeah, and there's still things that are in my uh, blind spots. I mean, having to go through college uh, for four years without a car mm -hmm. means that, uh, and this was a time when we didn't have Netflix. So yeah, it's I mean. You don't really have enough time to catch up on movies. I remember The Departed. I watched that during spring break after it won Best Picture. Yeah. Yeah. So outside of that, it's like that brief time during fall break, spring break, summer break, winter break. That's it. Mm -hmm. And if I didn't catch a film during Thanksgiving break, I'd have to watch it during winter break. Yeah. And then, of course, growing up in Louisville, that means some of these indie films, they're blink and miss it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and thankfully that was before the push of 3D movies. As otherwise, <laughs> that would really be uh, taking away screens. Yeah, 
No, and and no, that's actually that that is that is very true. Yeah, I mean, I I know when I was in, I know when when I was in college. I mean, you know, it, that was as I was really starting to get heavy into movies, and I I was grateful enough. I was I was thankful enough to be able to uh, be on campus, and uh, you know, I got to see movies. Excuse me. Uh, there were. Um, there were houses near me because I was in downtown Atlanta, and so I got to frequent the art houses. I did get to frequent the university screen room that had some of these inter- independent films, and that's how I saw some just terrific films for the first time. And uh, yeah, it's it's I I know uh, especially especially because when you have something like college going on, it, it can definitely be, it can definitely be a challenge. And that, that is one of the things where availability is, uh, is an issue. And I know that's something that you've, you've talked about a lot, uh, as much in terms of what the studios have done over the years, over the past couple of years, when it comes to access of critical screenings versus, uh, screeners being released and uh i i agree wholeheartedly with all of that because of the fact that it's like i know uh screening well i mean screenings were a boot press press screeners were a boon to me when you know when the pandemic was going on and movie theaters were shut down so yeah, i mean especially uh for some of these markets that wouldn't otherwise get a press screening yeah. and when i lived in louisville it was basically Disney and Lionsgate that had regular press screenings. Every now and then, Fox might appear out of the blue with a screening. Mm-hmm. Although, for some reason or another, Disney did not do a, a press screening of Force Awakens when I was living in Louisville. I had to see that one that uh, Thursday night. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, living in Chicago, like, thankfully, it's a better market, but uh, still, like, I mean, some of these family-friendly films are only screening on Saturdays. Like, Universal has the bad guys coming up next month, and the save the date is for a Saturday morning. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm Shober Shabbos. Is there mm-hmm. going to be a link available? Because yeah. otherwise, I'm not going to be able to have a review. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I I certainly, you know, and I, I will admit, I certainly don't have that. Uh, you know, I, I certainly don't have that you know i certainly don't have though as many um issues in terms of getting to screens as uh some critics do and i and for for a very personal reason for you um it's it's one of those things where it's like they they really do need to you know it, as much as we as much as i'd like to see the industry shift it sometimes feels like they they shift back in the opposite direction as fast as they can when when uh when a new opportunity arises for access and uh it's 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 always it 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 always kind of i mean i it shouldn't surprise me at this point but i guess it kind of baffles me i guess is the more opportune way of putting it yeah i mean for as many people that say jews control hollywood why are they making it tougher for us to cover movies when the holidays fall during the week? Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember it was Toronto last year. I mean, 
the whole, like I lost two full days of prep because of Rosh Hashanah heading into the festival. And then of course I'm off for Shabbos. The yeah. next week's Yom Kippur, but then going into that, I get to save the date for the new Bond film. And sure enough, it's on uh, Semka's Torah. So, or Shemini Yatzeret. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the, either Bond was Shemini Yatzeret or Semka's Torah, and then uh, Venom 2 was the other holiday. But mm-hmm. either way, uh, like, when you lose out, I mean, Bond was like the biggest movie to yeah. date. And to lose out on that film would have just been epically bad. I mean, it triggered a depression going into Yom Kippur, which was not fun, especially with watching two Holocaust films that uh, day during the morning and afternoon. Mm-hmm. But I mean, thankfully, MGM was able to uh, work out another screening in Chicago, and I was able to see the film that following Thursday. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's, I mean, it's just tough, uh, especially when the holidays fall during the week. I mean, thankfully... Maybe one day of Passovers during the week this year. Shavuos is on the weekend, so the only day I lose is Monday. But mm-hmm. when all the holidays are during the week, I mean, it's just so tough to get anything done. Yeah. No, I, I, I can, I, I can only imagine. Um, I mean, I, you know, it's like I know I have, you know, I, I have a full time job, but that's not the same thing. <laughs> but uh, it still does make it still does make it yeah. tough to uh try to uh work work our way around what the the studio's schedule is and uh it's you know i know it i know for for me it's like i've had to sort of shift my shift my work schedule around for screens of batman and other and marvel movies and stuff like that and make sure i have off for those specific days but yeah i mean it's it it's I know that's that's one of the things that uh following you on Twitter I've been more more aware of is the is the struggle with access and the struggle with uh you know studios just not really being as flexible as they probably should be when it comes to when it comes to getting critics access to new new releases because I mean you know all the critics, all critics know that it's the new releases are what drive readership towards oh, yeah. towards our websites. If we have our own individual websites or new articles that we may write for other people, and um, you know, it's it's just one of those things where it it can it can get difficult to uh, be able to do that. Yeah, and then I mean, and if you can't see it in theaters uh, ahead of time, I mean, there's always the hope that the home entertainment release will be able to bring us some traffic, but you never know. I mean, it, it just depends on the film. Yeah. Um. Well, uh, before we before we wrap up, uh, I'd like to uh, give you the option, the chance, one more time to uh, tell tell people where they can find you on online. Salzy at the movies.com. That's S O L Z Y. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Danielle S A T M and Facebook at Salzy at the movies. Okay. I also have a Substack, which you can find linked off of my, <laughs> uh, the sidebar on Salzy at the movies.com. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, by all, and, and certainly, I mean, if, if there's opportunities to, uh, subscribe, subscribe and follow uh, a writer like Danielle 
Danielle, uh, by all means do. It's it's always it's an insightful read as well as a uh, as well as an entertaining read. And uh, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you again. I'd like to thank Danielle for her time to discuss baseball movies and discuss film criticism and being a film critic in general. Um, that was a that was a good discussion to have. Um, that's it for this episode of the Sonic Cinema Podcast coming up at the end of the month. Uh, we have another chapter in the Established Classics series with Timothy J. Cox. And um, then the summer hits. And like I said, we will have Danielle back to talk uh, Jurassic Park and then um, and more. And it's going to be an interesting summer. And I'm looking forward to talking about it. You can uh, find me at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema, the Sonic Cinema podcast uh, on Apple, Google, and Spotify, as well as the uh, Sonic Cinema podcast YouTube channel. And then, of course, at always, as always, at www.sonic-cinema.com. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.